This conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon and welcome to our session today on protecting and preserving the record for appeal. And this is being presented by Commissioner uh, Zig Popko. And um, we're really lucky to have Commissioner Popko today. He only has about uh, three or four more days left on the lower court appeal bench. Uh, so this is uh, a swan song for him and an opportunity to summarize his four or five years uh, that he's been doing the lower court appeals for us. Uh, it, it has been a pleasure working with, uh, with Z, uh, and uh, he's hit me with a lot of questions and um, provided me a lot of feedback that's helped me in my job. So. Uh, I, I will be missing uh, Commissioner Popko. Uh, Commissioner Popko lifted out of his bio, and, and you'll see on page two uh, the bio and the list of attachments, because uh, we are going to go through those cases. And what he left out of his bio is that he was a pro tem for Tempe Municipal Court, and that's where I actually originally met him. Uh, believe it or not, he does not remember meeting me. Uh, so I uh, obviously did not make an impression on him back then. Uh, but he is going to the juvenile bench starting on May 1st. Uh, and so let's welcome Commissioner Popko. We also have on uh, uh, Judge Daniel Kiley. Um, Judge Kiley is also doing lower court appeals. He's been doing them for us for about for five months. Uh, so we will welcome Judge Kiley. And Judge Kiley, you can... Uh, pop in at any time. Uh, for questions, you can um, pop in and wave if you have a camera and ask the question. You can put it in the chat box and, and um, I can ask that question of Commissioner Popko. Uh, we will be recording this matter, so we are recording now and this will be posted on uh, YouTube and it will also be uh, posted as a podcast. Uh, the materials, as always, are located in Hightail. Uh, and with that being said, uh, we'll turn it over to Commissioner Popko. All right. Uh, my talk, yes, I'm talking. Thank you, uh, everybody, for uh, uh, joining us uh, today. Um, I always approach th this kind of, of meeting with some trepidation because I think a lot of you have been doing this a lot longer than I have. And, you know, I'm essentially the Monday morning quarterback, I feel like, sometimes. And so uh, it's easy for me to be uh, uh, critical. Uh, and uh, but uh, I didn't realize I'd forgotten to put the the Tempe stint in there. And uh, so I have uh, been on the the city court uh, bench as a pro tem. And so I know the experiences, or at least some of the experiences that you all have had. Uh, and I have a lot of empathy for uh, everything. Uh, that uh, parties, lawyers, self-represented individuals uh, uh, put courts through uh, in, in what are sometimes very emotional cases uh, for them. Um, and uh, so next slide, I guess, or the second slide uh, is our agenda, sort of. Charles, there it goes. There it goes. Thank you. Uh, so I have a few things I want to uh, just kind of talk about. These are just things I've noticed over uh, the past several years here 
that I've been uh, working with you all uh, on this. And um, I do want to encourage a lot of questions, so please feel free to, to ask anything while um, uh, talking about uh, any of this. This really is meant to be a conversation and not just me imparting, you know, whatever little tidbits uh, that I've uh, that I've come across. But I really would like to have a conversation with you. Uh, slide three, the next one. So you know, it, it's really the same kind of appeal uh, that that we're all used to. Uh, the notices and the, uh, the the appellate memoranda they all get filed in your courts there uh, after the notice of appeal. It is strictly record based. There are provisions for de novo trials, but in all the years I've been doing this, I've never seen one happen uh, on there. And uh, so it really is just based on the record as it is presented uh, uh, to you all uh, in your in your courts. Um, and a couple of issues I wanted to talk about in terms of the notices of appeal and, and who gets to appear in your courts versus who gets to appear here in uh, superior court. And actually, I'm not sure there's anything you can you can do about it or your role is to do anything about it. And I, I've mentioned this to Charles a couple of times uh, in, in passing, not in any kind of organized way. But every now and then, you know, when you have uh, like a husband and wife who are tenants in, in an eviction case, uh, only one of them will sign the notice of appeal. And, and the law is essentially, unless that person happens to be a lawyer, uh, uh, that notice of appeal is effective only as to the person who signed it. Uh, and the judgment becomes final uh, as, to, as to the non-signer. Uh, so if they're husband and wife or they're just roommates or brother and sister, whatever, uh, uh, I'm sort of faced with that situation where uh, uh, if, if they're not a lawyer, uh, and I don't know if that's something you're supposed to tell them or not, because you're not supposed to give legal advice, and I get that. Uh, but I don't know if the uh, uh, the the long notice of appeal rights can somehow one day be amended to reflect that. Same thing with business entities. I know under the Supreme Court rules, uh, Rule 31, I think, uh, uh, business entities through managing partners or or, or corporate officers or things like that can appear in justice courts and city courts to some extent to uh, uh, argue their entity's, uh, entity's case. But in superior court, that, that Supreme Court permission doesn't, doesn't apply. And so they have to have lawyers. And um, fortunately, there's case law that says, all right, if the corporate officer who's not a lawyer signs the notice of appeal for the, the LLC or whatever, I can uh, uh, give them extra time, 30 days or so, to hire a lawyer, file an amended notice of appeal, uh, and then we can go on from, from there. Uh, and I've had that a few times, and LLC seemed to be the most popular form of business model these days uh, for, for what used to be just proprietorships, sole proprietorships. And, and I'm sure that's uh, probably intentional uh, because of the protections that the LLC form 
gives to uh, assets. Um, but LLCs can appear in superior court, uh, at least as I read the rule, without an attorney. Uh, and, and so that delays things. And again, I don't know that that's your role uh, to tell them that. Again, maybe that's something the notice of appeal rights can, can reflect. Uh, who knows? But uh, anyhow, so that's just something I've, I've noticed uh, over time. Um, so I guess the other major point here uh, that I would uh, ask you to think about is uh, particularly when you have under advisement rulings is to make sure that you are giving uh, that your staff who's ever mailing out notices of your rulings um, do so in a timely fashion. As you know, the uh, time to appeal in most cases is very short, 14 days, I think it is in, in, in civil cases generally, five days in, in eviction cases. And, uh, uh, you know, in eviction cases, usually you're ruling from the bench anyway. And so the notice is, is right then and there. And so it's generally not an issue. But in a number of civil cases, I've had where the, um, notice of the of the ruling and the judgment is is you know given you've signed it you've dated it it's entered on the docket but for whatever reason it doesn't get sent out to the parties uh in a in a in a quick fashion and uh if they don't get it quickly enough the clock is still ticking because the, the 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 clock starts when it's entered in the docket it doesn't start when the party gets notice of the appeal and unlike the civil rules of appellate procedure here in Arizona, there's no existing rule in the Superior Court rules of appellate procedure that allows for some kind of, of, well, we didn't get notice and we filed our notice of appeal as soon as we got notice. You know, that text is not missing. Uh, the rules aren't identical in that respect. Uh, so please do make sure that there is a uh, procedure process in place with the court staff to send out the rulings, notice of rulings promptly. Uh, there is a, a case uh, called DMB Construction, and I've got the site up there, uh, and that's where the party, uh, the court didn't even send out the notice until after the time to appeal had already passed, and so it literally was impossible uh, for the, uh, for the uh, appellant to file a, a timely notice, and Justice Cameron writing for the court in that case said, well, we'll excuse it in that case uh, because it really was the, the trial court not even sending out the notice in a timely fashion. Uh, but let's avoid that whole issue and just uh, uh, try to get the, um, the, uh, the, the notices of the ruling out there in a really in a, in a timely fashion. Uh, uh, that would help a lot. A um, couple of other, or another issue that I've had a couple of times are what I called unintended final judgments. And so, um, um, so the next slide, I guess. So I put the two rules. Uh, I don't, I don't know. On my screen, they're kind of tiny. I don't know how they're appearing on your screen. There may be a way to uh, enlarge the text on your screen. I'm, I'm not sure, but I've got the civil rule of the rule of civil procedure on the top there, 54C. Uh, and I've got the Justice Court Rule of Civil Procedure 139B there. Oh, thank you. 
uh, at the bottom uh, of the of the page there. And and they're slightly different. So the way uh, Superior Court uh, civil procedure rules work is it's not a final judgment unless the, the, the ruling has the magic words that this is a final judgment, essentially. Um, and no other matters remain pending. And so go appeal uh, if you want. The Justice Court rule of civil procedure is, is slightly different. Uh, there's no magic language necessary for final judgments. There's only magic language, magic words necessary for uh, judgments that are partial. Uh, and, and you want to give the, the partial uh, uh, judgment uh, appealable effect. Uh, and then you add the magic words uh, to, the, to the order. Uh, so it's slightly different. Why they have that difference, I don't know, uh, but it's there. And what I've had a couple of times is uh, the judge will issue uh, an under advisement ruling. It's a minute entry form. It's essentially complete. It doesn't say judgment on it but it's essentially complete. It's who wins, what the damages are, uh, if attorney's fees were at issue, you know, what those are, you know, everything is sort of done. And then, you know, after a certain amount of time, somebody says, oh, let's do a formal written judgment. And so they get a document and, and they call it final judgment or judgment. And the judge signs that and dates it, you know, let's say 18 days later. Well, the case law is a substantively identical second judgment doesn't restart the time to file the notice of appeal. That clock started ticking when you issued your order ruling on everything. Uh, and, and if they're substantively identical, that time to appeal may have passed. Uh, and so, and I've actually had that brought up a couple of times where, where the uh, appellee was saying, oh, untimely appeal, dismiss, because this was essentially a second uh, uh, substantively identical judgment. And the case, the main case on that, if anybody wants to go look at it, is Fields versus Oates, uh, 230 Arizona 411. Uh, and in that particular case, it, it wasn't substantively identical there were some things different uh, so the appeal was able uh, was able to uh, proceed uh, but um, but be careful of that if you're used to signing everything and you're actually finishing the case and you're ruling it you may be without necessarily intending it uh, starting uh, starting the appeal clock for whoever is the aggrieved party uh, in that particular uh, in that particular case. Um, and I guess the other point to make is um, I've noticed that a lot of cases when you have lawyers, they're all citing these Arizona rules of civil procedure uh, rather than the justice court rules of civil procedure. And I understand they're, they're related and, and they're meant to be uh, similar but they're not exactly the same. They're not identical. Uh, and, and, and I just find it confusing when one side is citing the civil rules and the other side is citing the justice court rules. And it would be helpful if, if you just had all the lawyers and the parties just signing one set of rules. Uh, so that could be the set of rules uh, that, were, um, that we're following uh, on that. So, that's pretty much all I have to say about 
about the notices of appeal and judgments and and being careful about um, entering inadvertent final judgments if that's not what you're intending to do. Um, and so any questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, experiences that you want to share on that? Seeing none. All right. Um, next slide then. So uh, uh, this is just basically some tidbits on, on how to keep the record clear and avoid a remand for a trial de novo, because uh, that's ultimately what sometimes has to happen if, um, if the record isn't clear enough to allow uh, the uh, review that needs to, to take place. And, and, you know, some of this stuff is really, really basic. Like, are your microphones working? Are, is your recording equipment working in court? Uh, I, I've had cases where everybody's talking. I could see their lips moving, but either the microphone's not plugged in or it's not working correctly. Uh, in, in one instance, um, uh, it, it would cut out every fixed amount of time, and I can't remember now if it was three minutes or five minutes or eight minutes, whatever it was, but it would stop and it would stop for like four minutes, five minutes, and then it would restart again. And, and if you looked at the FTR, you could see all the, the, the starts and stops. And uh, I went and checked with the our IT people, our FTR people here, uh, uh, just down the hall for me, as a matter of fact. And that was just some kind of problem with the FTR equipment uh, with, with, that that was happening. The system was like rebooting or something uh, on, a, on a fixed regular basis. And I had to send that case back because I just, you know, half the record was not preserved. A lot of the testimony was not preserved. And so, uh, you know, do that. Um, you know, the rustling of papers, you know, we all have the microphones on the benches there. We all have the council has uh, uh, microphones and sometimes I can't hear the words that people are speaking because the papers are so loud. Uh, and if it's an important, crucial witness, I don't know what else I can do. And again, in those cases, I do give it to our uh, IT people because they have more sophisticated listening equipment than I do, and they can play with the audio levels and, and try to mask out the paper noise and, and uh, uh, enhance the speech noise. Uh, and, and sometimes that's actually worked and, and I've been able to review the case, but sometimes it's not. And, and so again, I don't know how you, you know, you can certainly control what you're doing by your microphone, uh you know but what the other parties are doing i don't know but just something to be remindful about uh again uh on that uh exhibits and documents uh please you know mark them clearly and let me know uh what's going on uh i had one case where everybody's talking about this that and the other thing just literally this document this paper here's where he says x and and then at the literally at the end of the case, uh, uh, the, the the they were both self-represented individuals. They said, "Well, judge, here's all the papers we've been talking about." And it's like, all right, and and that's literally what got sent up 
from the from the uh, the court was a pack of papers in a manila envelope i had no idea what they were i i had the recording but i had no idea what people were talking about uh so don't just admit a whole bunch of stuff uh, please look at each document admit each document number each document or letter them if you're using letters because uh, because otherwise i in that case i ended up sending it back as well because i had no idea there was no way to there were a lot of documents and there was no way to correlate what they were talking about on the record to a piece of paper that i had in my hand um please make clear rulings about whether you're admitting something or or uh uh if it's just being marked for identification purposes uh something like that uh if you have a lot of documents in a case and they're and they're you know kind of you have a number of emails for example or text messages or photographs or something it's it's good to uh have the lawyers or if there are lawyers have the parties if they're not represented uh, and have the witnesses uh, talk about which document or which photograph by number that they're talking about. They can't just say in this photograph, you can see X and in this photograph, you see a slightly different version of X. Again, that can get really confusing. And you're all well aware if you've been doing this for a while, how we talk in court and how we talk to each other outside of court, two totally different things, right? It's very artificial, uh, uh, the way we behave in court. But there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is so that the record is able to be reviewed in, in, in a fashion uh, that's effective. Uh, so it's helpful if, if the parties do that artificial exercise um, on there uh, in terms of identifying what they're talking about. Um, photographs and, and other visual images uh you gotta capture them in the record somehow uh if they're if they're not actual photographs that they're admitting uh as an exhibit and i don't know how many cases i've seen where the um uh the party uh wants to show you a picture on their cell phone or wants to show you a picture on their laptop computer that they brought to court you know unless you can have a camera that that captures that somehow on your FTR, you're going to have to figure out how to how to get there. And in the um, so Charles, I don't know how you have them have access to the minute entries that um, uh, or the samples. So I'm about to refer to number one. So I don't know how you want to work that. I can put it up on the screen. OK, uh, and this one's short um and some of them are real long and and obviously we, we're not going to take the time to read them um but if if you're able to see number one um oh i see you've got the pdf there okay uh, oh yeah you said that that's right so in this one it was an eviction so this is just an example uh it was an eviction uh and and part of the reason uh, i don't know if the tenant was alleged to have been a hoarder or something like that uh but they were just talking about the garbage and how bad 
the, the premises the tenant was allegedly keeping uh, the premises and things like that. And um, the landlord's agent uh, was there and um, uh, the agent comes in with his smartphone and shows the judge how poorly this tenant was keeping the premises in terms of, of trash and this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, I haven't, and they weren't made part of the record in any, in any way, shape or form. And so that's an eviction that, you know, if you believe the testimony and if you believe how awful these things looked like, uh, 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 you know, maybe it was a justifiable eviction, but the judge looked at the images and the judge took those pictures into account and I had no way of reviewing them. Uh, and I don't know what they looked like. And so because the record wasn't complete and they weren't preserved in any way uh, uh, as part of the, the record on appeal uh, that I could you know, either issue an order to the, to the court clerk there and say, hey, send up the pictures because they weren't part of the record anymore. It's an eviction that had to get overturned. Uh, and, and I really, I, I didn't know what else to do in that kind of case. So people are showing you images and, and, and they're, you know, and you're going to rely on, on, on the visual depictions in, in making your, uh, recording and, and they're not producing paper copies like the old days where you could actually stick them in the envelope and, and, and send them over, uh, to them. You, you sort of have to make a decision at the time of the hearing, because I know in most cases, you know, they're just showing up and here, judge, look at this. Um, you got to decide, you know, what you're going to do. Uh, are you going to accept them at the hearing? Uh, are you going to take their phone as evidence? You're going to ask them to, to submit their phone as evidence. I'm not even sure I'd be able to look at it later, but you know, that. are you going to tell them, hey, you came to court unprepared because uh, there's no way I can preserve these into the record. Uh, and so, sorry, we're not going to admit this exhibit. Move on, you know, give your testimony or your next witness, whatever it is uh, that they're, that they're going to do. Um, you know, I, I thought uh, over time, well, you know, you can, depending on how long the images are, obviously, you know, you can have everybody watch them. And then you can offer a visual description and see if the parties have any objection to that. Uh, I don't know, is that you testifying? I just saw a chat thing there. Uh, I, I didn't see it quick enough. The uh, question is, if only smartphone images are shown, should the JP refuse to look at them or continue the hearing to allow the party to get copies or dismiss the eviction. Uh, and uh, certainly some of our other judges can chime in here too, uh, but every JP court now should have a, an email address. Uh, and so it should be easy enough um, from that smartphone for them to just email it directly to the court and, and then have the court print off copies of the pictures. Um, that is preferable to probably preferable to them having it on a flash drive 
because some of our IT people certainly don't want flash drives plugged into our system. I don't think anyone burns CDs anymore, um, so I'm, I'm not even sure. You, you still do? I still <laughs> I burn thrown away yet, but uh, I'm, I'm a luddite. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, emailing to the court is probably the best option. Yeah, I didn't. So I think in the case that I'm thinking about, I'm not sure. I forget how old this one was. So this one, the, the trial was held in 2016. Uh, so this was probably one of my earlier uh, uh, appeals, um, maybe 2017. Um, so uh, I don't know that the email addresses, but that would certainly solve the problem right there uh, if, if, if they could do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and with respect to videos and to exhibits, if, if you're not going to rely on them, then just state on the record that um, the court did not find any evidentiary value in the video. Because uh, so many times they're going to say, this video shows this person hitting me, and the video didn't show that. So make it a little easier for the appellate judge. What, what I do is... Uh, when I started as a lawyer, I did a lot of depositions, and so I, I learned to visualize what everything occurred looks like in a transcript. And so if you can visualize what it looks like in a transcript, you'll, you'll be making it easier to create a record for, for an appeal. Um, where was I? Right. So, uh, and I guess continuing, you know, that's that's totally up to you if you want them to supply it later, if they can't email it for some reason, uh, or if they come to court with a, a, a an old-fashioned CD disc uh, or an old-fashioned uh, thumb drive. Um, and as, as Charles said, uh, the IT people are very nervous about that. Uh, 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 you can have what's called an air-gapped computer, which is basically a machine that's not connected to the network in any way, shape, or form, uh, is not used for any other type of business, really, other than plugging in strangers' thumb drives. Uh, so you can look at, at, at images and, and other things, and, it, and you never plug in your thumb drive into that machine and then plug it into your work machine. So it is strictly a, a quarantined, isolated, pandemic type of computer. Uh, so that would be uh, one way of doing it. Or, uh, like I said, I don't know how the cameras are in all your different courtrooms, uh, but if you can... Um, somehow get a, a, a capture of video of it with the FTR. Uh, but it sounds like the easiest thing to do is have them email it if, if, if that's possible. Uh, same thing with text messages. It's a little uh, easier, you know, depending on how many. And, and I know I, 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 I've seen your cases where people come in with hundreds and hundreds of text messages and they want you to look at all of them. Uh, but if there are only a few, they can easily be read into the record, uh, you know, with their date and time stamp. Uh, you know, if, if there are only a few that are material, excuse me. And, and again, uh, just to reiterate what, what Charles just said, that this only, what I'm talking about, really only applies if it's 
something that's going you're going to rely upon as part of making your decision. Uh, if if you've not giving it any weight, uh, then then you know if I could see it or not, I don't know. Uh, you know, I guess the only uh, exception to that I can think of and maybe it's the exception that swallows the rule. If the issue on appeal is the judge didn't give X any weight and that was an abuse of discretion. Well, if I don't can't see what you didn't give any weight to, I don't know how to rule on that on that issue, on that uh, uh, appeal point. And so uh, I guess it all has to get into the record somehow, but still at least tell me if you've relied upon it or, or not uh, relied upon it. Um, and, you know, and this happens, uh, what I'm about to say next happens, uh, you know, infrequently, but it sometimes happens. And, and, and I know everybody's, uh, got a lot of cases down there, but, you know, make sure the records are all together. Cause I've, I've had a, a number of cases where, you know, all the exhibits aren't transmitted as part of it and we have to go chase them down. Uh, and, you know, I understand that that happens and, and people are, 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 uh, you know, assembling things as best uh, as best the situation allows, but but please have a process in place that all the exhibits uh, get um, get sent up. Uh, I think that's about all I wanted to say about that. So keeping the record clear, transmitting it to the superior court. Uh, and and I know Judge Kiley is still uh, here. I hope uh, and feel free to uh, jump in, Judge, uh, with anything you've experienced uh, in your in your time here. Uh, any questions about that, or, or did you have anything, Judge? Or no? <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, slide six, then I guess. Any questions or comments or? And I see a chat thing, but I'm wondering if that, yeah, that was the existing one already. Okay. All right. So uh, this whole next set of, of, of talking points are about uh, trial procedures. And, and I've had a, a few cases now where Basic trial procedures aren't followed when they have to be, uh, and and unfortunately that's been grounds for uh, sending cases back uh, and and having people uh, redo them. And and oddly enough, a lot of them were with lawyers, and 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 there were um, and the lawyers sort of created the the problem, uh, and, and and that'll become clear uh, in a moment. Uh, what I'm talking about there. So basically, at least when I'm reviewing cases, I'm looking for whether or not basic trial uh, procedures are, are are being followed. And following the rules avoids the appearance of being arbitrary, right? And appearing biased or appearing prejudiced. And one of the things as judges we all have is the ethical duty to maintain confidence in the judiciary. And, and I think a large part of that is how we conduct our courtrooms. Um, and sometimes we have literal bench trials 
where we're having the trial right at the bench. Uh, and, and, you know, in and of itself, and, and Charles and I have talked about this, in and of itself, you know, maybe that's not an issue. But I think having bench trials right at the bench can um, lead to problems that eventually uh, could, could lead to reversals. Um, and I understand that we all have different um, styles. Some of us want to be more informal than, than formal, uh, but there's a spectrum. And, and I think there's a lot of room on that spectrum. Uh, but if you start getting to the point where your trial is not even looking like a trial and you're starting to forget basic due process points, uh, uh, that can be uh, that can be the issue. And so, uh, you know, send the parties back to the tables if you're having a trial rather than having it up to the bench. And, and apart from appearances, it, there's a very practical reason for that. That's where the microphones are and that's where I can hear everybody. Uh, I've had a few bench trials, and I mean that literally, trials at the bench where I can hear the judge because the microphone's kind of right there. Uh, I could hear one party or the other because they're typically, in, in the case I'm thinking of, it was the landlord's lawyer because he was, or she, whichever it was, was standing, you know, right by the microphone and getting their uh, words on the record. And then the tenant was off somewhere and I could barely hear the tenants, if, if at all. Uh, and they're not speaking loudly, you know, maybe they're intimidated, I don't know. Uh, but they're far enough away from the microphone that I can't hear them. And if your courtroom is set up, like I'm envisioning courtrooms being set up, you know, there's a table at each, or excuse me, a microphone at each party's table. At the bench. And, and so, you know, for that practical reason alone, it's a great idea to send the parties back to the tables. So, so I encourage you uh, to do that. Same thing with witnesses. Have them testify in the witness stand. Again, that's where the microphone is. You know, if it's a party and they're a witness and they're by your microphone anyway, then then do what you normally would do. I, I know some of you, it's okay for the parties to stay at the tables. Some of them want them on the stand, you know. That, that's neither here nor there to me. What's here nor there to me is, can I hear them? And, and so where are the microphones? And that's where the, the people talking ought to be in, in, in uh, range of the microphones, uh, I guess. Um, but if you follow a little more formal procedure, I've noticed, I think you don't miss things as much, right? So you have your openings, you remember to swear in the witnesses, if they're not just all standing in front of you, like five or six people in front of the bench, you remember to conduct direct examination and to give the party uh, the chance to do a cross-examination uh, on there. And um, you give the, 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 the party the chance to redirect, and then you move to the other side's evidence, and then you have your closings, and then you give your 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 verdict or your decision. So by sending them off and having them do, you know, what looks like a trial that we're all used to kind of seeing, I think you're less likely to forget those important parts uh, and not create an argument that that the case ought to be uh, sent back. Uh, so that's the practical reason. Zig, could then, I just chime in for a second? 
Yeah, yeah, please. I, um, I, I agree with what you said, and I, I want to emphasize, too, that um, based not only on my uh, brief time on the LCA calendar, but also as a, as a trial judge, I think the when you conduct trials with a little bit more formality, that induces the parties, I think, to behave a little better, a little more, with a little more formality. Um, they're, they're less likely to lapse into the, the bad habit of talking over each other or interrupting each other. And so um, conducting the trial with a little more formality, number one, leads to a, a better record. Number two, it makes for a better presentation of the information and a more orderly presentation of the evidence to you. And, and thank you for that. So yes, uh, and talking over each other is is one of my talking points, because uh, again, I don't get a transcript unless it's over 90 minutes. If it's not over 90 minutes, then the parties don't have to give a written transcript, and 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 I'm watching the FTR. Uh, uh, and if they're talking over each other, and if they're not standing by the microphones, you know, I'm missing. Um, and, and Charles just pointed out that there's a best practice for you all uh, to send parties back. So I think what Judge Kylie just said, uh, that the technical practical reasons, I mean, there are all sorts of good reasons uh, uh, to, to, to send the parties back. Uh, you know, and, and, and I've watched the FTRs and, and, and I've seen where the judge is right there and the parties are there and everybody's having this discussion. and, and you know, the thought that came to my mind is here's Solomon out dispensing wisdom to the parties. And maybe that feels good. And maybe, uh, you know, and maybe you're actually working correctly. And, and for that particular group of people, it, it worked. Uh, and maybe that's the better system we ought to have in civil cases, you know, that are under $10,000. I don't know. But that's not the system we have. The system we have is a more structured, formal system, and and that's the one you know we ought to be uh, working with. Uh, and so you are judges in law courts, uh, and 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 when people are watching the FTR and you have people sitting in the audience uh, watching, that's what they ought to be seeing uh, um, on there. And so. So there are all sorts of good reasons to 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 be a little more formal uh, on that. A um, couple of other things about trial procedures. So don't forget, in civil cases, there's no Fifth Amendment privilege. So uh, opposing parties can call each other to the stand uh, on that. Uh, so uh, unlike a criminal case uh, where where the defendant doesn't have to testify, so so do allow the other party to call the other party or one party to call the other party if, if that's uh, relevant and, and is following the rules there. Uh, judicial notice. So um, this has come up a couple of times. And um, so one of our ME samples, number four, has an example of this, but, but we don't need to go to it. You can just look at it uh, when you see it. So I see this, uh, I've seen it in a couple of places. I've seen it in protective order hearings, uh, and I've seen this in evictions uh, on their mostly protective order hearings. And that's where the party or the, uh, uh, sometimes the lawyer, uh, I've had one case where the lawyer asked the judge to take 
judicial notice of the testimony of these other witnesses in the interest of time. So they put on witness A, and then they say, judge, I've got uh, witnesses B, C, and D, uh, who will essentially testify to the same thing. And so I'm asking you to take judicial notice of their testimony. I don't think you can do that. Uh, there's certainly case law out there that says you cannot take judicial notice of the truth of testimony. Uh, you know, you're the fact finder, but you got to hear the testimony. I don't think you could just take judicial notice that the untestifying witnesses would say the same thing that the testifying witnesses did. Um, and B, it deprives the other side of cross-examination of those non-testifying uh, witnesses. But I understand, you know, this is done in the interest of, of saving time. Uh, but there are ways to deal with it, right? So if they are really going to say the same thing, well, you can exclude them as a waste of time or cumulative or something like that and make the lawyer or the party choose, you know, choose two of your best witnesses. We're not going to, you know, hear three, four or five times people saying the same thing. Um, um, or you can have them testify if, if you want, but I don't think you could save the time uh, by accepting any kind of a vowel or statement that um, that uh, uh, witness B is going to say the same thing that witness A uh, uh, witness A said. Um, objections. So A, please rule clearly on objections. I need to know if you're sustaining or overruling them. Uh, so I can know uh, what's going on because they will complain. Um, but uh, the bigger point, I guess, is what I call testifying objections. Um, and and I'll, I'll just explain that by giving an example. And, and you see this a lot with self-represented individuals, I'm sure. Uh, you know, one party uh, has, is testifying or they have their witness testifying and the other side says objection and you go, what's your objection? And they immediately start, that's a lie. What really happened was, and they start telling you their side of the story there. And, uh, and I had a case where it literally, that was how the testimony was given, uh, was, was the party one person on the stand, the other person allegedly cross-examining them, but instead of cross-examining them, they were basically counter-testifying at the same time. And, and that was just a confusing, confusing mess. And, and that case got sent back, because that was also the case where I got the stack of papers admitted as one exhibit uh, on there. So, you know, Again, the, these are not lawyers, I understand that. They're self-represented people. As soon as they hear what they think is a lie, the immediate reaction that they're gonna wanna do is, is correct the truth, right? Correct the lie and call it out and tell you what the truth is. But you gotta, you know, remind them they'll have the opportunity to, to say what they wanna say, uh, but but you can't let those testifying objections come in because again it deprives the other party the right to cross-examine what that person is saying the truth is so that's another problem with it besides it being just confusing uh, uh, it, it 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 robs the opportunity to cross um, so be careful of testifying objections. Um, 
do you want to uh, differentiate because uh, what judicial notices from an offer of proof because it almost seems like the attorney in that instance is trying an offer of proof so um So the difference is, as, as I see it, is, is judge, I have these three other witnesses. And you would rightly ask, what are these three other witnesses going to say? Why are we going to waste, you know, waste is the wrong word. Why are we going to take the time to listen to these witnesses? And then the lawyer would say, judge, you know, this witness would talk about this, that, and the other thing. And then based on the lawyer's anticipation that these are what the witnesses are going to say, you then make the determination, okay, this really wouldn't be a waste of time. It's similar to what the first witness testified to, but it's not exactly the same. It's material to what it is, whatever the issues are. Go ahead, Mr. Lawyer or Mr. Party, call your second witness. And then that witness gets on the stand and testifies. And if everything goes according to plan, they say what the what the offer of proof was, but they're still now testifying under oath, and they're still going to be subject to cross-examination. So that's an offer of proof, is where the lawyer is giving you the anticipate or the party, if not a lawyer, is giving you the anticipated story from this witness to enable you to make the, the preliminary decision whether to actually have them testify or not, or nah, it's really the same thing. I don't need to hear this a second time. I'm gonna exclude this witness as, as cumulative witness. Uh, is that what you were getting at, Charles, or do you want something else? That was the point I wanted to make, thank you. Okay, thanks. So, yeah, I, I guess I, do, I don't want to leave the impression that you, you can't have the party make an offer of what it is they're going to say, but don't then accept the offer as the testimony. If, if you're convinced that what the offer is is an important piece to hear, then you got to have the witness testify uh, as to those things, because maybe they won't testify as to exactly what the lawyer or the party is expecting. You know, sometimes they don't. Um, please don't let people talk over one another. We talked about that. Um, so let me just uh, uh, bring home the cross-examination point uh, one more time. So in your uh, case example number two, um, which I could call up here, um, this was a um, eviction case, uh, if you get a chance to read it. And this was one of those bench trials. It was literally held at the bench. Um, this was a case where uh, the landlord was seeking an immediate eviction because the uh, tenant allegedly uh, threatened harm to the landlord and, and the staff, the rental agents. And and I remember this one. And you know, everybody is literally up at the bench. You had the uh, the tenant, the landlord, agent, the counsel for the landlord, and maybe some other people. But it seemed very crowded up there. Uh, uh, and and everybody was huddled up by one microphone. 
and uh, the agent gave uh, uh, their side of the story. The tenant essentially just denied it, and then the judge just summarily ruled, uh, and and that was the trial. And, about seven minutes or however long it was, this person got kicked out of their apartment uh, for that. And, and I sent it back because uh, there was no cross-examination, no nothing. Uh, and, and that wasn't a trial uh, in my view. And there clearly was a disputed issue of fact, whether or not these threats were actually made, no admissions were made. Uh, and, um, and so you do have to, allow for cross-examination uh, and, and in this particular minute entry ruling I talk about uh, look they are summary proceedings I understand that but they're still trials uh, and they still have to be trials uh, even though the issues may be limited there's no discovery time frames are really short uh, uh, but they're still trials uh, the rules of evidence still have to be complied with and cross-examination still has to uh, be allowed. Uh, testimony has to be under oath. Uh, and again, you know, had we sent the people back to their tables and it proceeded, you know, like a more uh, a formal setting, uh, maybe th this wouldn't have happened because it, it didn't have to be so rushed or something. I don't know exactly uh, why it was done that way. Uh, but so this is just one example of uh, a significant witness who was not uh, cross-examined or the tenant didn't have the opportunity to cross-examine. Um, so the next, next case, so sample number three, is about, um, I believe is another eviction case. Is that three up there? So, uh, so this was another eviction case, uh, and it had to do with rent. And and the tenant said, "I tried to pay rent. They wouldn't accept it because I was suing them on something else, and they wouldn't take my money anymore." Uh, and they just went back and forth. The problem was it was the tenant on one side, lawyer's counsel on the other side, and it was just the lawyer's counsel talking. Uh, not under oath, nothing like that. Uh, and it was the lawyer's counsel, or I'm sorry, the landlord's counsel who was talking. Uh, the tenant was under oath. The tenant gave uh, his side of the story, uh, didn't make significant admissions. Uh, and then the landlord's point of view was just all argument and assertions by the landlord's lawyer. Uh, and indeed, when the tenant tried to cross-examine the landlord's lawyer, uh, the trial judge said, you can't do that. They can't lie because they will get into serious trouble if they, if they uh, do that. And so this was another case that got sent back because there was no evidence, no admissible evidence presented on behalf of a landlord. Uh, and this was a lawyer doing this, uh, just all unsworn assertions and argument by counsel. There were no material admissions made by the, uh, by the tenant that would otherwise support the judgment for the landlord. And so, so this got sent back. 
and 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 undone. And uh, so be careful. So the the point I guess I'm making is you can't rely on the lawyer's unsworn statements and arguments. They're not evidence. That's a pretty basic rule of of of, of law here. Uh, it, they're just not evidence upon which you can um, make a make a material determinations of fact. Um, don't know don't know what else to say about that. So, any comments, questions, thoughts? Because if not, we'll move on to some protective order materials that I have. All right. Um, so here are some of the things that I, I I have seen on protective order cases, and and what ends up sending them back uh, on there. And so the first one is really control the scope of the hearing. Uh, and Rule 36A of the protective order rules say the court must limit the scope to the allegations uh, in the petition. Uh, and I read that as a as a mandatory rule, uh, not dependent on objection. Uh, I, I think it's your affirmative duty as the as the trial judge to to limit the scope of the testimony and evidence uh, to the allegations uh, in the petition. Uh, and I have on occasion reversed uh, where where you know in my view the unlisted events that were allowed to be testified about became the tail that wagged the dog is is kind of how I think about it and I think due process in that kind of case required uh, reversal uh, so do limit the scope uh, I've sometimes seen uh, and I don't think this is error but I think it 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 throws the parties off a little bit so uh, some trial judges I've noticed, as soon as the witness, be it a party or just a witness, starts deviating just a little bit from, from the, the date and time of an allegation, the judge is automatically cutting them off. And, and maybe that's a little too strict, because I got the impression sometimes that what the witness was trying to do was give a little context to what was going on. Uh, so, you know, the example could be, um, you know, the, uh, the plaintiff or witness could be explaining why the two parties were together uh, on a particular date and, and they have to mention something that is material, not material, but that gives context for why they were together that happened the day before. Uh, so I guess the way to read rule uh, uh, 36a is don't let them bring in alle new allegations that they want you to base an order of protection on or a protective order on that are not listed in the petition if they need to give a little context uh, uh, about it you know use your discretion i think you have that to use and if it starts getting far afield and they're telling you you know, their life history or their history of the relationship, obviously you have discretion to shut that down. Um, but if they're just trying to give a little context, uh, you know, I think, I think you have discretion to hear it uh, as long as it's not new, a new basis, a previously unlisted basis uh, of, of, 
domestic violence, if it's an order of protection or harassment, if it's an IAH uh, kind of thing. Um, and, and actually this one I, I, uh, is kind of related. I'd be interested to hear what people have to say. I've seen a few times, and, and I've not reversed on this basis because I'm not sure it ever really made a difference, but I've seen a few times where judges will affirmatively ask the plaintiff or the defendant, I guess, about any alleged violations of an ex parte order that was issued. So the, the defendant's alleged conduct between the time of service of the order and the time of the contested hearing. I think that's not appropriate because it's outside the allegations of the petition, but I don't know. Charles, do you have any opinion on that? As long as it's it's not an element of one of, if it's just providing context, it, it, it would be acceptable. If it's beyond providing context, then no. Okay. I mean, I would be leery about it, particularly if the judge asking of it, but, you know, I haven't seen any case law on there, but, but I certainly wouldn't rule that you're issuing an order of protection because the defendant violated the ex parte order. Um, because that would be relying on an unlisted allegation. Um, so I don't know what to do with that one. Um, let's see, findings. So rule 38H, uh, so I see some chats. Are those new questions? Yes, does the limitation limit a defendant from bringing in evidence of crimes of the plaintiff? So my, I'm trying to think of an example on there. So, you know, I'm alleging that you committed an act of domestic violence against uh, me and your defense is that I've committed an act of domestic violence against you. Unless that act of domestic violence somehow justifies my act of domestic violence or your act, I've lost track now who's doing what, uh, or, or makes it a, a non-criminal act for some reason because it's either justified or it's self-defense? I think the answer is yes, I, I, because, you know, if they want their own order of protection, they need to go file their own order of protection. Charles? I agree. And, and we've only got 30 minutes left, so we might need to pick up the pace. All right. Uh, and here I thought I wasn't even going to have enough for an hour, but I want to make sure I answer uh, the question. Yeah, I think you did. Okay, so uh, specific findings. Rule 38H, please, uh, it says the court must state the basis for the decision on the record. Uh, so don't just state that you find that the, the plaintiff has proved either domestic violence or harassment. Uh, I think the rule contemplates you putting out a more detailed factual basis uh, for that. Uh, you know, this is an act of domestic violence, you know, describe what the act is, or this is the series of acts that constitute harassment. If it's an IAH, you know, uh, no reasonable person would, would, or any reasonable person rather, would feel seriously alarmed, annoyed, or harassed. Uh, but do state your findings. Uh, don't just, 
you know, grant the order. You know, the exception might be if there's really only one act, he pushed me, I hit the wall and I got a black guy and that's really the only thing that's testified to and they have the, the roommate relationship, then, you know, great. Uh, but, but if there's lots of testimony and some acts qualify and some acts don't, uh, might be, uh, certainly you should uh, put the basis. And you don't have to call this up, Charles, but when you're looking at number four, the case example, um, there's an example of where I felt like I needed to reverse because I had no idea what the trial judge was, uh, was uh, uh, relying upon to find the basis. And that one has a judicial notice of, of testimony example too. Um, slide number eight, uh, protective party, protective order parties, right? So the rule allows third party plaintiffs if it's not the actual plaintiff. Um, so uh, they're supposed to uh, be an appropriate person. So, you know, you should at least inquire as to why the, the actual uh, plaintiff is not able to come to court uh, for that. You know, typically I think we see it as, as parents asking for uh, protective orders on behalf of their, on behalf of their own children. Uh, but um, again, I, I've seen cases where adults are coming in and asking for adults and I'm left wondering why isn't that adult here? Uh, and, and there's nothing in the record that would seem to support that. Uh, don't forget uh, minors under 12, uh, only the juvenile court can issue um, uh, protective orders if, if the defendant is a minor under 12. So uh, be mindful of uh, that as well. Uh, if the defendant's own child is, is, uh, is uh, gonna be listed as a protective person, there are additional findings you need to make. Uh, so don't forget to do that as well. Look at Rule 5B1 uh, for that. Um, you can tailor your order. If, if there's a, a, uh, an existing family law decree out there, a family court decree out there about parenting time, for example, but the case is over. It's not pending anymore. The decree's been issued and you know, the parenting time is set, uh, and yet mom and dad are still having issues. Uh, I read rule 23H1 of the protective order rules that say you can uh, make uh, uh, arrangements in the protective order to allow the parenting time uh, to continue. In other words, your protective order can't be the vehicle by which the parenting time gets cut off. Uh, that's not supposed to happen. Uh, so you can tailor your, your order uh, to allow some kind of contact to allow the parenting time uh, to continue. Uh, other protected persons, that's what uh, I was talking about. You know, if one adult is coming in for another adult, I, I'd be asking questions uh, about that. Uh, slide number nine, eviction cases. So I, you know, and I will speed things up a little bit uh, because we've already talked about this because a lot of my examples were eviction cases. Uh, so they are summary, but as I said, due process still applies and they still need to be uh, recognizable as trials. Uh, and, and I see what happens or what I've seen happen a lot of the cases I reviewed is 
I understand you have to make the rule 11, eviction rule 11 inquiry. You know, are there uh, uh, triable issues or issues of disputed issues of fact? Uh, and, you know, you, you interrogate and, or question rather the defendant, you know, did you pay rent? Did you fail to pay rent? And, and they go on. But what happens is, is the Rule 11B kind of just morphs into the trial and, and you forget to send people back to the bench or to their tables rather. Uh, and, and so I think where that's happening. So in your mind, if you can just segregate the Rule 11 inquiry, preliminary inquiry from the trial, uh, that would be helpful. Um, and if you're not going to set it another day, you know, because, because you know, that's, that's what the... Uh, uh, everybody's ready, I guess, you know, go ahead and send them back, swear in the witnesses, get the documents in that you need, the evidence of the rental agreement. Uh, that's uh, good to see, especially if they're arguing back and forth. So two things about uh, evictions, um, counterclaims and the retaliation presumption. Uh, most tenants, I don't think, are going to use the word retaliation. Uh, I think they're going to describe a set of facts that that are supposed to trigger that in your mind. Uh, so be mindful of listening to what they're saying. You know, I complained to the housing authority or I complained to the landlord about X and now, you know, they suddenly seem to be trying to evict me. Uh, so just, you know, listen carefully to what they're saying and 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 see if there is a retaliation issue to be heard on that. Uh, counterclaims, I know everybody wants to always throw in the counterclaims and yes, you know, they have to be in writing and yes, they have to, you know, have done all the things that the statute requires them to do, send the notices to the landlord, surrender the premises if they think it rendered it uninhabitable or inhabitable, uninhabitable, not habitable, uh, you know, give them half the rent uh, with the with the itemized list and the release of lien and all of that stuff. Uh, but but the counterclaims don't have to cite chapter and verse of the of the of the landlord tenant act to be a valid claim. I've had at least one case where they stated a valid claim, but they just didn't cite chapter and verse. And at the landlord's lawyer's instance, it got dismissed and I sent that back saying it was a valid counterclaim. Uh, so they don't have to cite the actual statute, I don't think, as long as they cite facts and have given the right notices that needed to be done or at least alleged that they've given the right notices uh, that need to be done. I'm sorry to be rushing. Um, attorney's fees, slide 10. So on attorney's fees, so the issue I always get is what, what the lawyers call arbitrary reductions. Uh, you just, you know, they ask for 1,400, 1,300, and they get slashed to 600, no explanations. And yeah, yeah I think an explanation is warranted when you're cutting, uh, cutting uh, fees. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure a lawyer could do much these days for you know less than a thousand dollars to be honest with you. Uh, you know the case law is just fairly there's a lot of case law on this, I guess is what I'm saying. 
And, uh, you know, if you're going to cut the fees, please give a reason. Because what happens is they appeal uh, and then uh, they ask for attorney's fees on appeal if, if I send it back. And so even though you may be thinking, well, I'm saving the, the losing party some attorney's fees uh, at the trial court level, if the attorney decides to appeal and there's no clear basis as to why the attorney's fees were cut, I may end up sending it back, not even, not even to say award them the full attorney's fees, but to give a reason that still makes them the prevailing party on appeal, uh, even though they might not recover all the attorney's fees from you on remand. Uh, and, and it's just creating more fees uh, there. And so, you know, just give an explanation and that would be uh, helpful on that. And an example of that is, do I have an example? Yeah, sample number five, when you're looking at your materials. Uh, you can look at that. Another uh, issue, slide 11, is interest on judgments. Um, and, and again, these are the same things. If it's a liquidated claim, uh, you know, the law says they're entitled to prejudgment interest unless they somehow waived it. Uh, and, you know, sample number five, again, is an example of a prejudgment interest case. Uh, and and I sent it back on remand um, because it wasn't you know the landlord had essentially waited five years to file a lawsuit. Well, you know I would be leery of giving him prejudgment interest for those five years too. Uh, but there were no reasons given for why the prejudgment interest wasn't awarded. Uh, so again, you know please give some sort of reasons. Um, title loan cases, these auto title. Uh, uh, loan type cases, uh, short-term high interest rate loans. Uh, you know, I we can disagree as to whether they're wise policy or not, but but the legislature has said these these very high interest rates are are not usury, uh, and that is the contract rate, and so that is the judgment rate of interest, uh, and and. I'm not really seeing any basis for, you know, cutting it uh, unless you give me a basis for cutting it and finding why it's not not the appropriate judgment rate. Um, you know, again, they're high, they're, you know, in, in many instances, the interest outweighs the, the principal, but, you know, it is what it is. And, and, and I'm not sure we can, uh, I'm not sure I can do what uh, the uh, just uphold it? I I need to see a reason for it. So otherwise, the law says they're entitled to it. Uh, slide twelve: traffic cases. Um, again, the same tips as mentioned earlier about making a clear record. Uh, don't forget to swear in all witnesses. Although if nobody complains, uh, there's case law that says it's not reversible error. So if nobody complains at trial, rather. If they complain for the first time on appeal, I, I'm not going to reverse it uh, according to that case law. Biggest thing I've seen is, is you know, the law enforcement officer is the state's witness. It's not the prosecutor. So the law enforcement officer does not get to cross-examine any witnesses. Uh, they, they, they testify on behalf of the state, and, and that's, that's pretty much it. I've had a case where the judge seemingly didn't say they were taking judicial notice of the posted speed limit, but 
but that's sort of a, what happened from my reading of it. And, and again, I don't think that's appropriate judicial notice. Uh, so you got to get in the record. Was it a residential or business area? What was the posted speed limit? Uh, uh, you know, even if you know what it is because you drive by there every day, uh, that's not that's not in the record, and, and that's not going to save the, the the finding of responsibility uh, on that. Uh, next slide, slide 13. So these are just some recurring issues. Uh, so, Z, we do have we, we do have a question. Uh, apparently, okay. there was a law enforcement officer who was also an attorney, so he insisted he could cross. I don't, uh, and he was a witness for the state. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think he can cross unless he's filed a notice of appearance um, on behalf of the state. Right. Uh, he's not. He's not a prosecutor. He's not from the city or county attorney's office. So even though he's a lawyer, uh, I, I, he's not representing the state. Uh, he's there in his capacity as a state's witness. And I, again, unless the, the city attorney has blessed that, I don't think so. Um, you know these some of these recurring issues you know uh you know and and these all just get uh overruled with a simple sentence right if rules of evidence don't apply they all complain about not having a jury uh they couldn't con uh, confrontation clause the one thing i will talk about in terms of confrontation clause it's, it's not confrontation clause but it, it's these uh, absent witnesses, right? So rule 10.2 of the civil traffic rules uh, talk about um, uh, documentary hearings. But the way I read the rule, that only applies if the defendant asks for one. Uh, so I don't think you could be taking all sorts of witness testimony by document uh, uh, because they couldn't come to court that day. Uh, unless the defendant has requested a documentary hearing, because when a defendant does, he or she waives a whole bunch of rights according to the rule, including the right to cross-examine. Uh, and I've seen cases where, oh, you know, these witnesses couldn't come, but they've submitted these written statements. Eh, I'm leery about that. And again, if that's really the only evidence, um, I may end up sending it back because the defendant has been deprived of the right to cross-examine, even though it's not a confrontation right, it's a right by rule and statute. Uh, next slide, third, uh, 14, some miscellany. Um, so appearance of impartiality. So this came up recently and it, it, it seemed that the the judge, the trial judge, was a last-minute substitution, and so they, you know, just took the bench. It was a trial that was coming on, and one side was represented by counsel, the other side was not. And in a quite understandable way, the judge uh, is asking the lawyer for all these quick summaries of the procedural posture of the cases and and uh, to give a summary of the issues and things like that. And I could totally understand that because the lawyer is supposed to be prepared, the lawyer knows what the judge is looking for. And so, 
the natural reaction is the lawyer is going to give the judge the information in, in a very quick way. The problem was it looked so unfair. It looked like the lawyer and the judge had this preferential partnership going and uh, and the unrepresented party complained about that on appeal, that, it, that, that the judge was impartial because the judge did not then turn to unrepresented party and say, well, what do you think the issues are and, and things like that. Uh, and it just looked really bad. The case didn't end up getting reversed because there was enough in there to sustain the judgment. Uh, but, but I saw where the appellant was coming from on that issue. And so, yeah, you know, rely on lawyers. I understand that instinct. Uh, but don't forget about your duty to maintain an appearance of impartiality. And, 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 and don't set up the situation where it looks like this lawyer or a lawyer has a preferential agreement. Uh, ADA issues, uh, you know, sometimes people need somebody to hold the book up for them. Sometimes people need somebody to walk the exhibits back and forth uh, once we get back into courtrooms uh, and things. So I, I don't think it's wrong to allow helpers in that respect. Uh, obviously, asking questions, maybe not. Suggesting questions, maybe not. You know, I think that's a closer question. But some basic assistance, I think they can do. Charles? Yeah, there is a judicial ethics advisory opinion that says that uh, you can't allow the unauthorized practice of law uh, as an ADA accommodation. Right, but I don't think uh, uh, having somebody hold documents for you or get yeah, documents that's, for you. Right, that's fine. They just can't act as the attorney. Right, right, right. Um, mediation agreement. So this just came up quite recently, and I do want to leave time for questions. I apologize to you all. Uh, so I had this weird case where you know, the parties mediated, but apparently it all fell through. But in the meantime, the court had dismissed the lawsuit, and I don't think Rule 130F of the Justice Court rules were, was followed. And, and they ended up having to file a second lawsuit to enforce the mediation agreement, and it was just this big mess. And, and I'm reading all this, and I'm thinking, gee, had Rule 130F just been followed, we wouldn't be here right now. Uh, so take a look at Rule 130F. If you have a mediation agreement and the parties have said there is one, follow that procedure before you dismiss the case, because sometimes the settlements fall through when it comes time to putting pen to paper and, and working out the very fine details. Uh, both parties had lawyers in that case and, and, and it just exploded. Uh, but but it, it, it became clear to me that I don't think Rule 130F. And finally, arbitration clauses. And I saved this for last because I don't have any law on this. And Charles and I have talked about this a couple of times because I've seen defendants uh, invoke arbitration clauses in justice court cases. And I've done quite a bit of research on this and I can't find an answer. Uh, I've reached out to some arbitration people that I know or ADR people that I know, and I, I have not heard back from them, unfortunately. But have you guys had this happen? There are people invoking arbitration clauses. And if so, what do you uh, do? 
And I see we have a question again about uh, the ADA. So let me look at that. Oh, I think so. If if the uh, so, do you swear both of them, uh, both the the party and the interpreter? I guess you could swear the interpreter, and you could sort of give them a uh, an interpreter's um, um, oath that you know they're interpreting honestly and literally. Uh, I don't know, Charles. What do you think? The question that was submitted to the Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee was pretty close to that, and the answer was no. Really. But you know, we don't, well, I, we, I don't will, let, we don't let litigants bring their own interpreters. Huh. All right. Well, I will defer to that opinion then. Um so has anybody had a case where a party has invoked an arbitration agreement and wanted you to suspend the case or dismiss the case because the other side refused to arbitrate? Because we have two sets of statutes and, and they don't talk about justice courts and superior courts. They all just talk about courts of competent jurisdiction. And if you have jurisdiction of the parties, um, would the court provide a severe speech interpreter? I don't know. So somebody with a severe speech impediment, um, I don't know what resources the justice courts have. Um, maybe if Judge Kiley is on still, have you ever had that happen in any of your cases, Judge, where there was a severe speech impediment? Uh, no, I, I haven't. I think what the first thing I would do in that situation would be to ask the other party if they object, they, they may, may be in agreement with it, thinking that it facilitates the the, the the proceeding and in that event maybe there would be a um there wouldn't be any issue later if if as long as it was done without objection but beyond that i i have not had that issue come up but if the issue is aiding the unauthorized practice of law i don't know that a non-objection uh solves that issue well i i wouldn't the way the question was Posed, I didn't interpret. I didn't understand it to be a question of practice of law, but simply um, helping a person to express, helping a self-represented litigant to express himself or herself. Oh, I, I thought Charles said it was an UPL type of opinion. Well, if if you truly don't understand what the person is saying, then how do you? Uh, what confidence? You cut out, Charles. That um, you wouldn't have confidence that the person is actually interpreting or is actually aiding in a legal capacity. So that is the concern that, that you have with that. Um, and uh, I do want to address one final thing, and that is we are going to and and. Commissioner Popko, since you're leaving us, you're you're not going to have this challenge, but Judge Kiley will. Uh, and that is, as opposed to bench trials, most of our eviction cases are being done virtually now. 
and we're going to be doing them on Court Connect, which is a spinoff of Teams um, or in an, 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 a go-to-meeting type format, uh, which will present some different issues. And you know, I think judges are going to have to be savvy enough to um, understand how to let people share their screens so that they can actually put the exhibits up. Uh, and I think that might make the record a lot more interesting. Judge Kylie, do you want to opine on that? <laughs> well, um, I, 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 I don't have any uh, thing to add, uh, although uh, other than I, I think you're right to point out that that's an issue that's going to have to be addressed, but I, I don't have any thoughts on, on addressing it at this point. All right. Does anyone else have any uh Final questions, we're, we're right at five o'clock. And I apologize to everybody for droning on so much. I, 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 I was afraid I wasn't gonna have enough material. I, it, I think the timing was perfect. Uh, there is a CodeJet certificate at the end of the packet. Again, uh, we're gonna post this to YouTube and as a podcast, the materials are available in Hightail. Thank you so much, Commissioner Popko. Let's give him a hand. Uh, Judge Kiley, we look forward to working with you. Uh, Commissioner LeFay was not able to join us apparently, uh, but Commissioner LeFay will be replacing uh, Commissioner Popko. And, and uh, Judge Day, do you have a question or? You... All right. All right. Uh, have a good day, everybody. All right, thank you all. Good luck, everybody. Thank you.